everybody, and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a real deep dive of all things in the industry. Now, sometimes there are passion projects, and sometimes there are travel trends, and sometimes there's somebody just making jam around the corner. Whatever it is, it all comes back to the industry. And for those of you who are new here, thanks for joining me. Uh, a little bit about myself. I've been covering the D.C. food, wine, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. You can check out the listareyouwanted.com, the online e-scene that tells you about every food, wine, event happening, beer, cocktails, you name it, in the DC metro area. Every opening, every restaurant coming soon, and every promotion that every restaurant is doing. Um, of course, you follow me at NYCCI, N-E-L-L-I-S, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And yes, on LinkedIn, too. I guess I have to do that, too, because social media is a cluster and I got to do it. But um, there you can stay on top of all of my travel and uh, eating um, the journeys. Excuse me. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, yeah. Every Sunday, Foodie and the Beast, 14 years, my husband and I have been on air, the only food and wine variety show in DC. And then lastly, here I am at the gorgeous wine lair. I'm so fortunate back in November, started this incredible partnership with Hardcast Media and The Wine Lair. Here we are, right next to the Ritz-Carlton in downtown Washington, D.C. I'm totally in my element per usual because I'm surrounded by lots of wine, and that's where I like to be. So let's get into um, what's happening. So per usual, out and about, having a good time. And I think I say this every week, but the city is busy. And not just the city, like everywhere. There's just a buzz in the air. I sort of wish I could bottle it up, like a bottle of champagne, and sort of keep it with me to keep that sort of radiant energy going. And let me just tell you about some of the places I went to. Okay, so Chef Marcel Afron, Afron excuse me, has launched his Shababi pop-up. It's at, pardon the name of the place, but it's called Please Bring Chips. That's the, uh, I know it's a funky, cool space and it's um, on 8th Street Northeast and they're doing a pop-up there for the next six weeks. Shababi is all Palestinian food. So think hummus and this Palestinian chicken and amazing za'atar covered fries. Anyway, it's so good. Please go out there and support them. I just love them. Um, and then no big deal, you know. Saturday night, just hanging with Gordon Ramsay at the New House Kitchen in uh, the Wharf. Huge, huge, huge party. And if you weren't invited, I mean, maybe you're just not on the right list. Uh, no, I'm joking. I was invited. It was very exciting to be there. And uh, it was a real who's who of the D.C. Uh, hospitality industry, writers and a couple of social lady people. But it was cool to see him. The space is really gorgeous. Uh, it's not cheap, people. So originally, I thought it was going to be more of a tourist spot. But I think a lot of tourists are going to walk in there, look at the menu and walk right out. So give it a month or two. And I think you're going to see a lot of DCers going there. And the views, I mean, it's the wharf. The views are spectacular. Um, oh, this is so humbling. I was so honored to be on Jenna Golden and Tammy Gordon's podcast, The Movable Feast. Um, it's such a fabulous show. So if you don't know Jenna and Tammy, they are two 
personalities around town and they, first of all, travel like crazy and they eat everywhere. So this is an in on all the fabulous places they're eating and or traveling. And sometimes they bring on a guest and this time they brought in May. So Jenna talked about actually eating at Rose's Bakery, which is a fabulous bakery here in DC. Tammy was in Tampa and she talked about some of her incredible eats. And I have to say, Tampa wasn't really on my list of my must hit places, but I don't know, maybe a field trip is in order. Um, and then I decided to go out of the country completely and talked about my trip to Sardinia and uh, some of the incredible feasts that I had there. So um, their information will be in the show notes. Please uh, check it out, tune in and listen and subscribe to them as well as subscribe to me, uh, both on YouTube and on this podcast platform. So lastly, last night, I was greeted incredibly and seated at Nick Stefanelli's new restaurant, Le Clue, which is in the Morrow Hotel over in the Union Market District. Now, you can see the champagne here. Last night, I was elevated a little bit. I was greeted with some Dom Perignon, which was lovely, and caviar, which was even better. Um, and Nick, who is known really for Greek, Mediterranean, um, and Italian food, is serving up French. Um, the space is really spectacular. I think brass, like a, a higher end brasserie, uh, great food. There's a gorgeous rooftop area, a great bar area. All of it is sort of slow rolling open, but I think you're going to see a lot coming from him uh, in the uh, coming weeks. And actually he'll be on the show March 2nd. So stay tuned for that. Okay. What else have I got? Oh, I got today's show. So this is a total blast from the past. Well, my past, my past for me. So I met Matt Carroll, Matthew Carroll, so, so long ago. It's making me age just thinking about it. But I believe we met when he was a sommelier at 2941. He was a very well-known sommelier already. He started at the, well, he didn't start at, but where I know him from is at the storied Inn at Little Washington, uh, right before 2941. And then he kind of moved around DC a bit. He was at quite a few places. And then all of a sudden, poof, he disappeared. And this wasn't a pandemic thing. Like this is a while ago. Like all of a sudden he was gone. I don't know where he was, but here's what I know now. He is with Skernick Wines and Spirits, which is a family business that has been around since the eighties. And, um, now not only are Matt and I going to catch up as we learn more about his wine journey, um, but he brought in bubbles, which you all know, I always love because I love the bubbles. So we're going to talk about Matt. We're going to get the who, what, where, why, when, and then we're going to talk about champagne because there is a lot of new intel that you need to know to consume it well. Yeah. All right. So and I'm seriously regretting driving already to the wine layer today. So, hi, Matt. <laughs> it's so good to see you, too. We're in the same room together. How are you? I'm doing incredibly well. That is. I'm so happy and, 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 yeah. I mean, I will be honest, I, you have not changed a bit. Maybe a little grayer. I would say so. <laughs> Other than that, I mean, I could pick you out of a crowd. You look oh, amazing. Thank you. you so, too. let's talk shop. Please. How did you get into wine? I mean, it's not like everybody can just walk up to the end of Little Washington and be like, I would like to be pouring your wines for you today. Right, right. No, and that, that was, it was a little bit of, little bit of luck, a little bit of hard work and, and all those cool components coming together. But I 
fell backwards into wine like I think a lot of wine professionals do. Is, mm-hmm. uh, it was a second career for me. I was a school teacher for almost 10 years before I got into this. And uh, working at a special ed school was amazing and uh, exhausting. Exhausting. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the the easy joke now is it drove you to drink. So therefore, you know, they didn't let me do it before. Now they encourage me. Uh-huh. Uh, but no, I and, and you know, unfortunately, in this country, it's hard to make a living as a school teacher with one income like that. So yeah. um, I'd been playing music in a band, which was a lot of fun, but was too busy for a school teacher's life, like getting mm-hmm. home, you know, three, four nights a week way late and then having to wake back up and and teach in the morning was tough. Mm -hmm. So still needed to make some money. I had a friend who worked at a wine bar in Baltimore Mm. and said, Hey, you should, you know, we need somebody else. You should come and meet the owner and and check this out. But did you know about wines? Did you have an interest in wines? I would say at that point I enjoyed wine. I didn't really grow up in a house that drank a lot of wine. Mm. Um, but I grew up in a very, food driven house. Like we, we cooked so, a lot together. We ate a lot together. That is and, exactly how I grew up. So like my parents are not drinkers right. at all. Although my mom does drink a little bit more now than she used to, but, um, like she used to order Harvey's crystal cream. Right, I mean, that's right. what she would order yep. at a bar and barely drink it. And my dad has never been, you know, but we were a food oh, focused yeah. family, mm-hmm. very food focused. And it's the same way. So, so it was, wine was always around, but it was mm-hmm. never a big thing, but I've always, you know, I, I, my light on my gravestone one day may say his hobby was collecting hobbies. And I, so I just, I've always yeah, liked just it. learning stuff and picking up new things. And, um, do you want to know what's going to be on my gravestone? Please. I've already decided. <laughs> it's going to say she was Jesse's girl. <laughs> All along. Right. Here right. she is. <laughs> we solved the story. We solved the mystery. My husband's like, that's stupid. I'm like, no, there will be enough people, people are going to we'll like get that joke. Enough people. My generation will get it. Right. Anyway. So how did you advance your wine education? So I got very lucky when I, I the, the place is actually still there called Grand Cru. It's in Belvedere Square in Baltimore uh-huh. and uh, was owned That's very by, well respected. It place. is. It is. And what for the longest time uh, was was owned and, and run by a gent named Nelson Carey. Uh-huh. Uh, Nelson, uh, who I would consider forever my first and most important mentor. Uh, he passed away a few years back, mm-hmm. unfortunately, but he... Uh, when I walked in, I guess he saw some, you know, some ability there and I was interested. And he essentially said, if you want to take any of these Court of Master Sommelier exams, I'll, I'll pay for them. I'll reimburse oh, you for them. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. So I, but that's no easy task. Lots of people do the WSET sure. and like start the process. But if we can just give people a sort of in on what, what, you know, like, listen, <laughs> Psalms are always, there's always like a lot of chatter out there about sommeliers that mm-hmm. like, you know, they're judgy and they're difficult. And right. I mean, listen, we know a lot of the same people uh, sure. and I love them, <laughs> but sometimes they're rough on me. And Absolutely. Like, you know, yeah. I'm like, Hey, I'm your friend. Right. But, um, but so what goes into that education? Like what does it take to get to the certain levels? What level right. are you at and how right. does it all come so, together? In that program, in the Court of Master Sommelier's program, there are four levels, so mm-hmm. to speak. There's the, an introductory course. Uh, then there's a certification, so the certified sommelier. Okay. And then there's the advanced exam and then the master exam. Okay. So, and you're a master? No. I've sat the master exam enough times now to, <laughs> to, like, to know a lot about that process, but right. no, I've, I have not passed that exam. I hear it's brutal. It's pretty rough. It's a, you know, itty bitty pass rate, you know, 
fewer people have been in space or fewer people have passed it than have been in space. Like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, like yes. wacky statistics. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I, I got very lucky, went through the first two pretty quickly mm-hmm. and then kind of had this, you know, studying for the advanced exam. And that was, you know, really interesting. And that's actually what brought me down to DC more because there was no real community wine community for like exam prep in Baltimore. No, there's a huge one here. Massive. Right? Massive. Yeah. So I was driving down a couple times a week Who to taste. It? Was it Andy? Um, Andy Myers. Andy Myers. John Wayback, yeah. Kathy oh, Morgan. God. So it was Kathy, John, and, and Andy, and Jared Slip really were the-, the I just saw Jared. Oh, cool. Last week. Yeah. They were really kind of the four that like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, really were moving this thing in DC and had a really active tasting group and steady community and and welcomed me in coming down from, from Baltimore. And- um, which was wonderful. So that, that kind of really helped me get ready for that exam. And I, mm-hmm. but I, you know, this, even the advanced exam at a really low pass rate. So I was like, well, if I pass this thing in my first shot, I'll quit my day job and do yeah, wine okay. full time, having no expectation to do so. Okay. <laughs> and then I did. And I was like, ah, oh, damn it. So what do you need? Okay. So wait, unless just for oh, people yeah. who don't know, what do you need to do to pass that? So sure. regions. Oh yeah. Like it, what, what do give me, if you could give me like, Four key components. Yeah. Of what so you need. they actually break most of these exams up into a few different parts. Like mm-hmm. so you've got a, a theory exam, which is like the trivia component. <laughs> like, if, and that can be regions. That can be what grapes are grown where, climatic conditions, a lot of cultural stuff. It can be about food and wine too, which is mm-hmm. interesting. It can be about tea. It can be about coffee. It can be about mm-hmm. anything that you might serve in a, in a restaurant setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, at the advanced level is all done as a written exam. And at the master level, it's all done orally. Mm. Uh, and then you've got a blind tasting component. Mm. So you're put six wines in front of you, three white, three red, and you've got a set amount of time to describe those wines to the, to the panel sitting in front of you and making your deductive case of why this wine in the glass is what it is. Now, are you supposed to, how granular do you need to get? Are you supposed to give like the year yeah. and the... The actual uh-huh. maker. So not no. just the grape, but like, are you supposed to be like, it's move, go, go? I mean. <laughs> Essentially, you're supposed to, for most of that, you know, and a lot of it does kind of build on the case that you've built above it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your conclusion should be a vintage, which you can kind of get, you know, you can get within a range usually, sure. depending on what the, the wine is. Um, then the variety, the region, subregion, quality mm. level. Uh, and sometimes like, you know, you know, you probably wouldn't do this in exam settings, but like a lot of times in tasting groups, somebody will be like, feel so confident about something. They'll call a producer. They'll say, right. like, I think this is such and such. I think this is so-and-so's wine, which is pretty know, ballsy. when it's right, it's pretty cool. When it's not, which is most of the time, it's like, <laughs> oh, well, whatever. <laughs> but so yeah, you've got that piece where you're, yeah, you're building this case for these wines. And, and a lot of that is people are like, oh, well, that's the part that's, you know, the hardest but in a way, like you can train for that and learn that just like anybody, like any any other thing. But I think you're training a muscle that most mm-hmm. people don't think about training. And maybe right? even more so, taste. you are, but you're also really training your lexicon and build and, and connecting that to sense memory is really what you're. It's I think the biggest piece of that is how that works. At least for me, has always been recognizing something when I pick a li- pick a wine up and making those connections internally to be able to say the right things to get the, get the points quote quote unquote. Right. So it's a little bit of a, it's just like anything. It's a bit of a gamesmanship sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
blind tasting is, I think, can be really helpful in the wine world. It's also a little bit of a parlor trick, quite admittedly. Um, they did that we had Bill Jensen. I re- saw. I listened to that one. Yeah, and, you know that was really fun. And Bill's a great taster too. Uh, Bill's some, I mean, just, aside from being an amazing guy, he's a he's fantastic a wine taster. So let's talk about. So then, how do you take all that education? Mm-hmm. Quit your day job. <laughs> and how do you go to, to the end of Little Washington, sort of the crown jewel, one of like, the greatest yeah. wine lists in the country? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, one of several, but of one course. of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you go about interacting? Because I assume one of the things that they don't teach you in that training is how you communicate with people right. to pour them a wine. Because right. the hospitality part is not part of your training. Right. There is a service component to the exams. Oh, is like, there? Yep, yep. You literally do tail, table service. Oh, I didn't You're open in wine for people. You're asking, like, they're asking questions. It very much is like a, a mock service. Like you're, okay. Um, but there is, I've seen and heard stories about folks that, you know, there's a lot of, in that piece of the test, there's definitely a lot of uh, subjectivity. So your hospitality and how you actually want to take care of that that guest mm-hmm. at your, even your mock fake table there right. is worth something. And I think that's something that there are, there are stories of really fantastic sommeliers going through these, these exams and being so cold and stern and just going through the motions that they lose those points, so to speak. Mm. And then there's folks, I think on the other side of it, where you, I've heard of people just, you know, dropping a whole tray of glasses, but they recover so well and they're so gracious that they still do well. Like, so I think you're right though. It's hard to, that's a piece of it. That's really tough and to t- especially tough to learn and teach people. Well, know? and I think that it's um, as a diner mm-hmm. and a uh, voyeur, if you will, of the <laughs> industry, um, I think f- Get, like, let's talk about the different, like, you were at 2941 and the Inn at Little Washington, both sort of white tablecloth, higher end right. dinings. But then you go to Bravo, mm-hmm. which they may have had white tablecloths, but you know what I mean? Like, so you have to take your wine chatter yeah. to the level of the clientele yep. and the feel mm-hmm. of the property you're at. Absolutely. And I think that comes in maybe even more granular level of realizing that every guest you approach, not just every table, but every mm-hmm. guest at that table, you should sort of be thinking about how's, how best can I explain what I'm trying to get across to that person? Right. I think it's, it, you know, and to, to do so in a, in a, in a kind way that actually is, you know, giving them information and letting them feel empowered by your wine list and, and, you know, that sort of stuff. There's a lot of fun pieces within that part of hospitality that I think either, People who are really great at it either think about it constantly or it's just so natural that like they don't think about it at all. And it's right. just how they work. Well, and just I think so cool. also it's reading the room. Like there yeah. are people who really want to chat wine. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Like this yeah. is what I like and I'm not familiar with what's on the list. Yeah. Like walk me through it. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who I and you and I both know people like this who are like, <laughs> uh, okay, I'm cool with spending a hundred. I'll sure. take that wine. Yep. It's a hundred dollars. That's what I want to spend. Yep. Do you know what I mean? And I think as a sum you know, sort of straddling all that 100%. is hundred percent. It really is. And, and like you said, every guest is different. Every, every experience is different. Every mm-hmm. sort of interaction within a group of guests is a little bit, can be interesting to play with and, and, and observe, but you're right. Sometimes you get the, you know, the, the sort of business guy who wants to show off a little bit and it's my job to help him do that. Right. Like if it's, and it's the same for somebody who comes in and is like, you can, yeah, they want to have a nice night. They're on a budget. We can still get you something super cool right. and that you're going to like, 
you're going to be so excited about just as much as the guy who spent 15 times more than you across the room. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Like we're going to get you a great experience and you're going to have an awesome bottle of wine. Right. Just because it's $30, exactly. let's say, it doesn't mean it's not a good bottle right. of wine. It's still on the list. And I think most sommeliers who, who have a lot of say in the wines that they get to pour. Yeah. will mostly come back to saying, I picked the $30 bottle of wine just like I picked the $3,000 bottle of wine. It's on the wine list for a reason. Like, I think this wine's cool for a reason. I love that you said that. I will tell you, when the source opened Mm -hmm. and Wolfgang Puck's brother, Klaus, put the wine list together and we went with friends. Right. Who we're not really friends with anymore. (laughs) And they, he was into wine and he was looking at the list and he was puffing up his chest and he was like, Nick, he's like, there's not a wine worth drinking on this list. Under five hundred dollars, I was like, "Really, Brian?" I was like, "See, that's um, Klaus Buck over there." I was like, "You are, might know something." I was like, Did you, "You want me to bring him over? You want to tell him that the wine list you put together is shit?" It's all I'm, terrible. I'm totally happy to have that conversation with you and him. Like, I'm here for it. I was like, "I don't have my microphone with me, but up, right? really, yeah. can I make this happen for you?" So I'm t- I, I think that's such a valid yeah. point. Like, it's yep. on the list for a reason, right? Right. And, and there's fantastic, especially, I think, you know, right now, I think we're, and I say, I, I think about this and I probably say it in some way every couple of years is that like, this is the best time to be drinking wine. This mm-hmm. is the best time to be drinking wine because there is incredible stuff at every price point. Like you can find no matter what category you can really like zero into like, I want to spend this much money at a retail shop or this much money on a wine list and you can do it and spend and taste almost anything you really want to try. Which is well, so cool. I agree with you. And I, I do think it's an amazing time as a layperson yeah. to drink wine because mm-hmm. re- regionally, not only does every state in this country produce wine, which is not all of them should, but it's right. still really cool. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're drinking wines from South America. We're drinking wines from Georgia, the country exactly. and Hungary, yep. you know, and mm-hmm. India is producing and Israel yep. has great wines. Like all these places you know, listen, what I knew when I was young was like French, Italian, yep. maybe some Spanish, right. California. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, 30 years ago, Virginia was like a joke. Exactly. And now, I mean, the wine's coming we're, out of Virginia. World class wine. Yeah. yeah. It's really, it's such a great time to be drinking. Absolutely. Really, or Greek wine. Like, I'm just thinking it's, of all the I'll regions. Say there's so many. And it... Yeah, not only is like there's this massive swath of any country you can think of and any mm-hmm. style you can think of, but like I said, thankfully, I think most between like, you know, great importers, great distributors in, especially in a market like this, we have access to all of it. Like we can right. get at every price point, like we can find $15 versions of cool Greek wine and find $15 version or spend a bunch more if but that's I what you feel biggest, like doing. the hardest part is for either in retail or at the restaurant is you know, if I say, uh, you know, if I'm in a restaurant, I say, listen, I love a Mount Etna Red. Right. Like, that's my jam. That's what I want. But you don't have anything like that here. What what you got? Right. You know, and that's, to me. But like, that oh, little bit of information, right. like, that that says a lot, like, about what stylistically you might look for. Like, mm-hmm. in, you know, say you're, that sommelier is running a program that is, or that retailer has a shop that is more focused on something else. Mm-hmm. Just knowing that like those things about that's that like, you know, that flavor profile and that kind of idea, they'll find something from wherever they've got wine. Right. From. Like if, even if right. they're, it's an all domestic list or Sicily. it's all, yeah, right. exactly. Totally There's you. so much cool stuff like that may 
that'll hit a lot of those same kind of hits for you. you know, check mm-hmm. a lot of those boxes for you without uh without being from Italy. Right. You know? Yeah. No. So I think that's it's. There was a big, although almost a rewind back to when we we jumped back to the inn and stuff like that. I, it was almost like the biggest culture. It was more of a culture shock because I had <clears throat> come from this wine bar setting where everything was so familial and like it, it's funny. I'll still find myself and I'll still hear myself like my internal uh, you know alarm go off mm-hmm. when a when a server, even in a great restaurant, will say something like, "Are you guys okay?" Yeah. I still remember the first time I, I think I said something like that and our, the, you know, the maitre d' of the restaurant pulled me aside in the most like kind refined. and refined way possible yeah. and said, we don't call our guests guys. Mm. And I was like, heard chef. <laughs> so very much a, uh, but it's one of those where you become so, it's such a simple thing that in, but in I most think, places, it's a familial kind of like Yeah, but you know, the disarming thing about the in a little Washington, I think what people are most surprised by, mm. aside from like the eye candy everywhere. Yeah. Because um, like decor, it's like exact, everything, it's, it's so like cool. everywhere you yeah. look, you're like, oh my God. Um, but is that the service is not fussy. No. It is not, not cold. my pleasure. It is kind of kind of whimsical. It is. Kind of fun. Yep. Very Patrick, obviously. Sure. But you know, the... The cow is being pushed oh, around yes. with the cheese. Most the, definitely. The guy who serves it is always telling the cheesiest jokes. <laughs> oh, <I> mean, yes. <laughs> it's such a, a, what I love about it, like if you think of a movie like The Menu mm-hmm. and like all those like super intense tweezery chefs, no judgment. I love, right, sure. love you guys. Love you. <laughs> um, but there is a joy right. and a, a reminder in that restaurant mm-hmm. that what you're doing is a pleasure. Yes. Food and wine. Our pleasures to be absolutely, had, and it should not be intense and serious, and you know, it should be enjoyed. I agree, and, and in retrospect, I think that that was a big takeaway from that experience that I tried to take through to to all other parts of my world. It was mm-hmm. was that it it is it's it, it didn't matter necessarily that this was this incredibly you know refined and amazing dining room, but that at the end of it, you were there to make. You're, you were there to make the guests happy and you were there to like just provide this really nice experience for people. Mm-hmm. And again, I just really think that that can be brought to anything else you're doing. Like there's, there's yeah, so much, so many lessons that can be kind of taken from, from that. And uh, we have a book now for Patrick O'Connell. Lessons yes. from the end. Lessons from the end. Okay. Well, let's move forward. <laughs> so you do the song thing. Yeah. You yep, hit it, you hit it hard. Yep. And then. Where'd you go? <laughs> what happened? What happened? It was, uh, you know, I kind of, I hit one of those moments where I'd been sitting for the master exam a bunch. I, you know, was, but it was going through a little bit of a career. What is all, what does this all mean phase? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, had no real int- interest in leaving the restaurant industry, but wanted to kind of see what else was out there for me 10 years from then. Well, not just that for those people who are not in the restaurant industry, it is a very specific way of life. Very well with, said. I mean, it is not, uh, it is not for the faint of heart. True. It is not for those who's, if they have partners, whose partners aren't yeah. on board, if they have children. Like, yep. you know, my son is um, at Silver Lion. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the uh, bartenders there. And he loves it. Right. Um, and he was in management before, mm-hmm. you know, at Red Hen and stuff. Yeah. Um, and but he wanted to really be behind the bar, yeah. and he's you know, getting home at three and four in the morning, yep. and that's 
That is a lifestyle choice. It really is. As and a work, a work and it's lifestyle. Hard. Yeah. So like, I think I was at the point where I was like, well, I think there is my life, my physical life in this, in this part of the wine world. I think I've got a life expectancy, so to speak. So mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of see what else was out there. And I started just, you know, as, as reading the same set of almost interview questions to everybody else I knew locally in the wine business that wasn't doing restaurants. Mm-hmm. I was just taking folks to coffee that worked for distributors, that mm-hmm. worked for importers, that worked for, you know, who were writers, who like anything else I could find and just said, you know, what do you like about your job? What don't you like about your job? Did mm-hmm. you see yourself doing this five years ago? Did you, what do you think you'll be doing in five? Like all those, you know, somewhat standard interview kind of questions. And it was just through one of those conversations where uh, my name was thrown into a hat for <clears throat> to work for a for an importer for a supplier mm-hmm. uh, called European Sellers, and they were doing uh, Spanish and French wine for the most yeah. part. Really great stuff. Eric Solomon's the has been the owner for for thirty some years now, and is you know really kind of pioneered a lot of that wine mm-hmm. coming into the country. And I yep, hopped on a plane, went to Charlotte, and was offered a gig on the way back to the airport. And I was like, okay, well. Let's give this a shot. And so I worked for Eric for, uh, gosh, about seven, seven, eight years. And then um, the opportunity came up to work with uh, the Skernick portfolio, which uh, is, you well, know. Give us a little background on Skernick. Yeah. Because I, you know, I read their yeah. history. They're very good at telling their story, mm-hmm. um, that it's this family-run business, started yeah. with the mom and dad. Yep. So it was, um, so Michael and Harmon Skernick are brothers up in New York City, mm-hmm. and Back in the 80s, really were, you know, literally just carrying bags, like, you know, do work in the streets and slowly started building an import portfolio. Uh, what okay, really- wait, I'm going to back you up. Yeah. Explain, like you mentioned importers mm-hmm. and you mentioned distributors right. for the faint at heart of the lay, sure, lay person. Sure. What does that mean? And how yeah. does that, act, how does that wind up to what's on our table? So in most states- uh, in, you know, I think Maryland's a really good example, you know, close by DC is tough to use as an example. Well, Montgomery County is we're a, a little, yeah. Ass, so we're a little bit ahead. of a wild card, but, um, Oh, right. Cause DC's laws are totally different. Exactly. It's kind like, of a wild you could just, west like, here. Bring yeah. Wine. Yeah. Yeah, it's so easy. Right. <laughs> so Maryland is pretty typical in a lot of ways Okay, and for a lot of the country. So that works in what most call a three tier system. So. Mm-hmm. I, as an importer, can't sell directly to the wine layer, unfortunately. Mm. I can't walk in and say, here's this cool bottle of wine, buy it. They write a check to my company. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. So what happens is I sell the wine as an importer to a distributor. Mm -hmm. In our case here, actually, our mutual great friends, Mike and Chris at 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 Prestige LaDroit. Exactly. So they're our local distributor. Mm -hmm. So we essentially sell the wine to them who there then can sell the wine to the wine layer. Okay. Um, but so they're the ones, so they're the distributor, right? You're the importer. So mm-hmm. the distributor is the one who comes, let's say to the wine layer and says, here are the wines you want to try. Right. This is what we're bringing in. Mm-hmm. But you, yep. since they're, they're your distributor as the importer, do you have to sort of sell your wines to them? Not sell sure. like money wise, but like, do you say, Hey, we just got this, Fabulous wine mm-hmm. from the Bordeaux region. We think you guys should be carrying it. Or are they like, what do you got? There's like, how does, how does that work? It's a little bit of both. Some okay. of it is, you know, there's parts of our portfolio that, you know, are very, like our champagne portfolio is kind of a thing that's, you know, our company is very well known for. Mm-hmm. So we're, in that case, essentially it's like, what can we get? 
Right. You know, there's a lot of that. But every once in a while, we've got producers that are new to our book or things that are new to, you know, um, you know, newer regions. Like we just brought on a Hungarian producer. Mm. So that's a producer that like this year sometime, I want to make sure that I present to Mike and Chris and we talk about that. And we're sort of it's where it might fit in not only to their portfolio, but where it might fit into this market. Where does it fit into D.C. restaurants and right. shops and in Maryland shops and stuff like that? Mm. So there's a little bit of both of that. And then there's the sort of. The other side of it that's not the distributor facing side where uh is a little bit more of you know managing the logistics and a lot of you know that fun living in front of Excel to some extent, you know. Right. Um, but I also assume you get to travel quite a bit and get to meet yeah. this one. I mean, you get Thankfully, to hear their yes. stories yeah. and you know, learn about their products. Right. Um, taste their products, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, so I assume that that there is a there is the shiny side and the sure. non-shiny always. side. Always, yeah. And and I think a good way to think of it in the way I've always, you know, because both suppliers I've gotten, importer suppliers I've gotten to work for, uh, I really do feel like my first job is being an advocate more than it is being a salesperson. Mm -hmm. I'm a pretty shit salesperson. Like I'm not, like it's something that I have never really, I would rather give you all the information and tell you some stories and let you. And you figure it and out. Let, and if you like the wine, then great. Right. If not, we'll find something else. That's cool mm -hmm. too. Um but really it's, you know, and again, I've been very lucky to work with, with importers that work with a lot of very small producers, like a lot of very small families that, you know, it's most of these, I, I tell folks, I'm like, you know, if you, if you call this winery, somebody's going to answer the phone, not in English and probably with the last name and that's on the bottle. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to be that kind of familial sort of situation. And a lot of that takes some advocacy. Like it's. Well, I was going to say, I mean, isn't it really hard when you think of wine groups or people who own like mm -hmm. we have Viv Coco here it's a gorgeous wine don't get me wrong but they have massive budgets in order oh, yeah. to most most people who drink and drink champagne right know it well when we talk and that's that's a great kind of you know conversation to have because we took we look at a producer like this i'm going to turn this so mm -hmm. gaston chiquet producer, oh i thought it was Viv Coco. that's okay but actually what's cool is that that gives us the cool like way to say to I compare know, well, these I, two i thought that oh my god can we cut that ah. okay no go ahead <laughs> no so so gaston chiquet is, so this is a grower a grower champagne sure. so like kind of that's you know the very generic term for a producer that literally is the farmer and they're harvesting those grapes and then they're making wine out of them mm -hmm. where that's like you take, take something like Viv Clicquot or Dom or any of these really big, houses, big houses and they're buying all that fruit. Like they, they usually own some fruit too, mm -hmm. but like they're a lot, they're buying a lot of, uh, a lot of grapes and then making wine in a house style. Mm -hmm. So, which again, those, those like wines can be exceptional. I, you're probably I feel right. Like we're yeah. Sitting here. We, I'll your looking mic. at it, looking at it's pretty, pretty rough. I will like here. hold your mic and help you out while you're doing that. And uh, while you're popping it. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I got a real grower's education. I mean, obviously between Foodie and the Beast and this show, we've had winemakers from all over the world on both. And, you know, the grower's story is so great. And that's really where I learned about these massive budgets um, and what that you can make it pop. I know you're not supposed to. Uh, it's, so it's instinct. I know. I know. Every psalm is like, no, no, you're not supposed to pop it. Um, but here, let's do that. That's, that's a good sound. sound. There we go. So we're, um, so tell me a little bit about, about this particular grower sure. and why it's, um, a great wine and a great story that you want to share right. as an importer. Well, like with this producer, cheers, by the way. Mm. <laughs> cheers. So good to so see. So this is, so Gaston Chiquet is, uh, a producer in the Marne. 
in the Marne Valley uh, mm. in a region called or a little uh, town called DZ. Mm. And what's kind of cool is that he is, you know, like a lot of these families, they've been doing this for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is he's got about 23 hectare, which on, honestly, in our neck of the woods, like for our portfolio is pretty big. We've got some that have like, you know, three or four hectare, tiny, okay. bitty, bitty places. But, so this is not a, it's not a single vineyard wine. Correct. This is a, but it's all his fruit. So mm -hmm. everything he grows here. Um, and this is about half Pinot Noir. Uh, there's some Chardonnay in here, a little Pinot Meunier. Uh, and what makes this pink though, is that there's red wine blended back in. Oh, yeah. Fast. So I have to tell people, if you were watching us on YouTube, the thing that's fascinating with this is that it looks like it's going to have some residual sugar on the back end, especially because of the color. Right. There's none. Sorry, yeah, this is the driest very dry. champagne that I have. And this is champagne? Yep. Right? So mm -hmm. it's it, from right. the region. Yep. So most people know this, but for those who don't, sure. will you just explain sort of the designation of champagne, yeah. how it works in France, and then how it works in other countries? Yeah. So the, the And then I'm going to drink some The champenoises are... Maybe the most, uh, they're incredibly well known for this and maybe, you know, mm. because of their being very litigious and, and wanting to you know, preserve sort of the, 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 the character of the, of what comes out of their region. Uh, it is a region in France that is known for making sparkling wine and that's legally what they, you know, that's why you can't call sparkling wine from other places champagne right. in any way, shape or form anymore. Even down to the point where it was method champenoise for sparkling, for that traditional method of making sparkling wine. Where in most other people were doing that. other regions I mean, were that calling like in, it California. I think there was a, I think I remember the name, but there was a yeah. sparkling out of California, and they had method champenoise on it, and that yeah. started a problem, right? Yeah. So now everything, if you want it, you can call it method traditionnel or something mm. like that. You can call, you know, you can call it something else, but you can't have the mention of, of the champenoise, the champagne or champenoise on there. Right. Um, so yeah, they get a little. A little itchy about that stuff, okay. but they. I mean, they're French, uh, right? And, and it's the, their product. They're and the Champenoise are even like maybe more so than most regions. Like they've even got their own, you know. And most do have some regions have to have some sort of uh, governing body. Mm -hmm. But the like the DOCG exactly in Italy in Champagne, they're even a little bit more involved. Like mm -hmm. they actually control the amount of each harvest is able to be used for vintage wines, how much is able to be used for reserve wines, mm -hmm. how much has to be tossed out to make vinegar. Like they really, they have a hand in a lot more than a lot of other regions. But what about with uh, champagnes? Mm -hmm. um, what about like the kind of grape that can be in there? Is yeah. that really structured? It is, but it's, because I always thought that like it had to be more Chardonnay or is it depends there on the part of champ a part of yeah what part of the region we're in okay. where but that's going to be more about almost like any region like uh what's going to dominate kind of what actually what's going to dominate the 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 dominating grape or what's going to make the dominating grape is what grows best in that area. Mm. Um, so you've got some places they can grow up to, I think it's, it's seven varieties they're allowed to use, but we only really see Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Meunier are really the big three. Okay. Um, <clears throat> more Meunier now than we've seen, you know, that seems to be growing in, in uh, is plantings. Climate, is that a climate change thing? It is a big mm. climate change thing. That yeah. It, it stands up better for, you know, but that's not something we drink. Like we don't see a lot of that grape by itself. By itself, very rarely. Ev there's a handful a of producers. Grape. It has been, although it makes really cool wine. Like there yeah. are some producers making it um, as still wine. There are some mm -hmm. producers making 100% sparkling wine out of Meunier, which is exceptional too. 
but we're we're thankfully starting to see more of it because it is it does have a really cool character and it's so can we talk about what makes it sparkling yeah. so you get the juice from the grapes uh-huh. you do you play <clears throat> with the taste of the juice first and then make it sparkling like what's the process yeah so a little bit of both so okay. typically for regular blanc champagne for regular white wine you know we would you make a still a regular old still white wine and then you let that you know you ferment that dry mm-hmm. bottle that and then in that second basically you've got one more shot to get to adjust where you want that sweetness okay. and you're adding so when you add that second hit of yeast to get the second fermentation in the bottle which is what gives you the bubbles right <clears throat> that gives you your opportunity also to see how much sugar how much sugar you want left in the wine mm-hmm. so essentially you're doing a little math equation that says okay i'm using this much yeast per bottle and you know i know that the yeast will eat this much sugar mm-hmm. over the amount of time until it's the yeast dies off and like a pacman in my very head, much so right? and eventually that pacman's full and it dies right so whatever sugar is left is going to be what's left in the finished bottle. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of where you, that's the one winemaker's chance. Just to be clear chance. for people, this is not added sugar. It is the natural sugar, right? Or are they adding sugar? You're actually adding sugar, but it's not necessarily like cane sugar. Right. It's not yeah. like, right. It's yeah. not like, you know, <laughs> there's a bunch of ways to do it. Visual, yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, sparkling wine, there's a lot of wine regions and a lot of styles of wine where it's very hands off. Sparkling winemaking, champagne as in, you know, as being one of those is not, it's very hands-on. There's mm-hmm. a lot you have to do. There's a lot that the winemaker has to kind of be in part, be a part of and, and make decisions about more than just saying, okay, we're going to let the yeast that came in off the farm run its course. Mm-hmm. That's what we got. Let's bottle it and, and roll with it. Cause which makes amazing wine too. We've got so many cool organic and biodynamic producers out there that just are doing it quite literally that way. Mm-hmm. Here you gotta you gotta do a little bit more work. You gotta sort of make these decisions of what's what do you want in the final product? How how much color do you want in your rose? Well let's talk about this wine specifically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like what what did they want? Yeah. And then how as the importer, right, how do you share this story with a prestige LaDroy? Sure. Right. And then I mean other than obviously being on my show. But like how does it how does it get either to the retailer right. or to the restaurant? And then they too are able to share why this is such a special wine. Right. Well, there's a few ways in that. Like, I think what makes this bottle incredibly special is that this producer has really amazing holdings. Like mm-hmm. they, you know, Nicholas Chique is just also an incredible technician for how he makes wine. Mm-hmm. And what's a little bit special here, I think, though, where we see a lot of most champagne, a lot of champagne is not vintage dated. Like we see a lot of its multi-vintages are uh, non-vintage. people who don't understand that that's just when the juice is made, right? Yeah, yep. So a lot of times producers will will make uh, more still white wine or still wine that they are going to make in the champagne than they're going to use in that vintage. And they blend that back in over the next handful of vintages. Mm -hmm. And it really helps make a house style. It helps... <clears throat> helps to sort of cover some some dodgy uh, weather maybe or for certain vintages, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And really kind of homogenizes your house style, which is a cool thing, which is something we don't see. Usually we celebrate vintage variation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times in Champagne, we want like, you know, the houses like we want Bollinger to taste like Bollinger. Right. Things like that. Um, so in this case, I think in growers that it's not supposed to be the same. Not always. Yeah. So that's what's kind of cool. So and this is a great example of it where this is mostly or I should say this is all one vintage except for the red wine that makes it pink. 
So, which is a little bit odd. So we, this, the wine, even though it's coming from different grapes, all right. comes from one vintage. And then about, in this case, about 10% of this wine is red wine added back into it. Still is, red wine. I mean, that is fascinating yep. to me because you don't, you can correct me because I'm probably wrong, mm -hmm. but I don't feel like you see a lot of that in a rosé well, sparkler. There's a couple different, I mean, there's really two ways to make rosé. Okay. You can either uh, do the, the method we're just saying, which mm -hmm. is literally blending red wine in, gives you a lot of control over how much, and it's usually that that's a, you know, a dry, still red wine. So mm -hmm. you're, you get a little bit more power, a little more structure like you would out of a red wine. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Doesn't always change the color a ton, but it always, you know, gives you a little bit more presence. <clears throat> the other way to do that is also to uh, what they call the Sonnier method to make maceration, basically. Mm -hmm. Same way you'd make red wine, but in a much shorter time period. So instead of letting <clears throat> those grapes sit on the skins for, you know, days, for example, you might just do it for, you know, 12, 24 hours, something mm -hmm. like that. And then bleed it off. That's where the Sonnier, Sonnier like blood, like it's, you're bleeding the, so the, the juice, yes, right. bleeding the juice off of it, where it's just picked up a little bit of color. Mm -hmm. And that's, so you're you're also getting some texture though too. The same for the same reason that you know rosé, still rosés or red wine has a little bit more texture, a little bit you know obviously that's where tannins coming from, all that mm -hmm. other stuff. So then we've got these two ways of making it, both of which if you let Sonnier rosés sit on the skins for a long time, you can have them be almost like red wines. You can have them be really sturdy and muscular, mm -hmm. or you can have them be really really pretty and ethereal and just have a you know. That really almost like onion skin pinkness to it them. It is really everything in between, right? Yeah. How mad scientist it oh, all is. Right, and that's one of the, and sparkling wine is one of the only places we see that because, like I said, winemaking is usually so hands off comparatively. Mm -hmm. When you've got great producers in, you know, kind of quote standard red wine production, mm -hmm. most of the they're they're most of the one most great producers are very proud to say that they intervene very little. <laughs> Where here you kind of have to. It's right. like, that's it's mad scientist work. You really do sort of take these things, all these elements, and you kind of get to build the wine the way you want it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so taking somebody like Nicolas Chique, who has this amazing base product, he's got this amazing fruit that comes off of his vineyards. And then from there, with especially with the rosé, he gets to say, well, I want it to be, because of what we've got in the base wine, I want this rosé to, have a little bit more structure this in this release, or I want mm. it to be a little less, you know, the wine's a little sturdy already. I'm not going to use as much, you know, reserve red wine here. But uh, so, yeah, it's, I just think rosé for that, for that reason, I think sparkling rosé is so fascinating because it's, you're taking a, a style of winemaking that's already has a lot of cool inputs mm -hmm. and you're adding even more, right, more to decisions it. And, and cool prospects to But though. I also assume with the, um, with the uh, sort of value of rosé in right. general, I mean, you know, 20 years ago, yeah. there were no rosés. And now I think I have a lot to do with it because <laughs> I drink mass quantities of rosé. You know, rosé is everywhere. Yeah. Um, thanks to uh, Wines of Provence, who had sure. a tremendous marketing campaign yep. and spent mm -hmm. a lot of money to make sure we knew what rosé is. Yeah. But I think it's changed the value of rosé champagnes yeah. as well mm -hmm. which may have been seen either as a sweet champagne absolutely right like just without knowledge well, i think you know before we we were when we first started talking about bubbles and stuff before you know we, we went on mm -hmm. today we were saying how you know you've got these misconceptions of of styles of wine and i think a lot of times like when you know there's there was a lot of that cheap 
you know, red Italian bubbly that was. Are we talking about Lambrusco? So eh, I can't stand Lambrusco. There's some, there's good versions of it. I know. But, but you're right though. There's a lot of really every time bad stuff. I, I, every time one is poured for me, just from looking at it, I feel like my teeth. <laughs> Are going to be purple. And that's, but unfortunately, that's how a lot of people, when they see a bottle like this on the shelf, well, for the longest time, people would think, oh, that's going to be sweet. sweet. Like, I mean, listen, like it looks not. like it's going to be really full fruit. Yeah. This bottle. Yeah. It does. It's a darker pink. Yep. And, um, you know, my head says, I'm going to get sugar on the back end. That's yeah. where my head goes. Yep. And I'm not, I am not a wine expert, but I drink a lot of wine. Right. So that's where my head goes on it. But mm-hmm. the fact that there's none, that right. it's bone dry yep. is amazing. Yeah. But let's sort of take that. Sure. So let's talk about these other sparklers. Yeah. Um, and I've talked about this on in other shows about the fact that, you know, if we talk about Lambrusco, um, Prosecco, mm-hmm. um, sparkling from California, Cava. Cava. But I yeah. do think Cava and um, Prosecco get sort of like when they sort of were largely launched here in the States as a less expensive alternative to French champagne Mm -hmm. um, that they, in order to appeal to the American market, they made them sweet. Yeah. There's so much sugar in them. And I think because of them marketing wise and, and sort of, what we were a- what we had access to for a long time mm-hmm. in the in this country, I think those producers and those Appalachians really, unfortunately, kind of painted themselves in a corner with with how those wines are perceived now. Still, I, you can buy exceptional prosecco and exceptional cava at every price point we were talking about before, right? But unfortunately, it's really hard. It's and it's tough for both a retailer and a sommelier let alone the consumer as well to say, to walk in and be like, well, why am I going to pay 50 bucks for a bottle of Cava when I can buy a bottle of Cava for $12? Like I don't, you know, there's, so it's hard, like it's even harder because champagne, the the, sort of the entry is going to be a good bit more You know it's going to be pricey. Yeah. You know, you're going to spend 40, 50 bucks walking in to buy a bottle of champagne almost anywhere now. Mm -hmm. And then, but like, to find Kava at that price point, it seems like, well, why would I buy that? Why would I but spend I think that it's, But honestly, I think it takes us back to earlier in our conversation mm-hmm. where you were like, if there is a $30 bottle of wine on yep. my wine list, yep. it is because I think it brings value to my wine list and it is a decent bottle of wine. Exactly. Same thing with a Kava. I'll never forget. And it if was, there's expensive Kava on the list, there's it's a there reason, for a reason. Right? Yeah. So I'll never forget Tale of Goat of all places. I mean, right. I know we already brought up Bill, <laughs> but I'll never forget being a Tale of Goat. This is years ago. And there was like, a rosé on the list that was like $165. Right. And right. I was like, and I was with people in the, the biz and we were all like, I mean, $165. But you know, <laughs> he came over and God love him. He sold it. We're like, we'll take that bottle. We'll do it. Exactly. And, yeah. and it was fabulous. Incredible. Yeah. But you know, you have perceptions. Rosé should not be more than right. $40 or whatever it right. is. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Cause, cause of what sort of were, were, yeah. Easily swayed by. Yep. Okay. I don't want to leave this show without talking about. Yeah. So last year at this time, <laughs> there was a champagne shortage. <laughs> it's really hard for me. It was, um, yeah. it was tough. It's the worst of times. <laughs> so where are we with champagne shortages? How did that affect? I'm sure the big houses were not as affected. Or, I mean, I know their stuff was hard to get. Right. But like, how does that affect the smaller producer mm-hmm. and how does it affect you the yeah. importer to getting their product to market sure well this was a situation you know that started kind of as the pandemic started and was it be- 
because of the pandemic or was it just, just did all the stars align at the right time? It was a little perfect storm, unfortunately. Okay. They, but the pandemic really did kick off a big piece of this where, you know, everybody was worried. Obviously, in the, the we were talking about the governing body in Champagne. Right. They were worried too. So they actually throttled back the amount that the producers were able were going to make that year, basically. So they... Which is weird. I, was it because people... Couldn't social couldn't be together because of COVID, or do you know what I mean? Like, what was the cause of it? Because from an agricultural perspective, the product is still growing. True, true. But then you know, I think they were to some extent they were like, well, for we want to look out for the producers, and to some extent, the big producers are are a big piece of this, mm-hmm. where it's less expensive all across the board if they if they're going to harvest all that fruit to put, you know, let's say 70% in tank and only 30% in bottles mm-hmm. because that they don't have to buy 70% of those bottles now. Mm-hmm. So there's a big piece of that that kind of, and you know, corks and all the other pieces that go along with it, let alone the labor to take care of all that. So they thought like, okay, we're going to help everybody out here. We're going to, you know, they're going to have to make less wine this year. The market's going to be quiet. You know, they're making some predictions that didn't always pan out. Mm-hmm. So then fast forward, it almost, not I wouldn't say it turned out to be opposite, but definitely people weren't going out to eat as much. They weren't going on vacation. So they had some extra money and they were just like the ones who were buying the $12 cabas and the cheap Proseccos. Now we're like, let's buy a bottle of champagne now. Mm. So all of a sudden the market kind of blew up a little bit and there was no wine to serve it. And that was partly because producers had less wine in their inventories because Mm -hmm. they had so much more wine sitting in reserve. They, you know, corks were more expensive. Glass was more expensive. Transportation. Transportation, shipping, all right. that stuff just became so nutty. The same things that were affecting everything were affecting champagne. And then, you know, sort of the, the CIVC, who's that governing body, sort of turned the taps back on the next vintage. Mm. But, you know, it was a, in a way a little too little too late because in 21, there were some serious weather issues. So that was, you know, it was, it was almost like, like, oh yeah, you want your exactly, champagne? Yeah. Yeah, Good mother, luck with that. Mother Nature was like, hold my beer. Right. And, we, and so we... <laughs> It was bad. So, so then, so that's what we kind of dealt with last year was, was having to, you know, a shorter, a smaller amount of wine to work with mm-hmm. because there was just less wine made. Like the, there was much smaller yields generally for even producers mm-hmm. like this. We we're talking like Gaston Chiquet, we're talking about, you know, where a lot of that wine is, you know, from vintages. Mm-hmm. So just a little less wine to work with. So, and then come to, you know, that's where we still are now. So now we're kind of, you know, working our way through that problem. Mm-hmm. Twenty or 2023, as far as sales go and, and, and for all of us involved, is going to be a lot like last year. It might be a little better. Uh, there is hope on the horizon. The 24 should be a whole lot easier for all of us. Mm-hmm. We've got producers that basically have caught up in the wines that they've been aging starting this year, basically, mm-hmm. will ne- then be available. So okay. we'll have, you know, the, the, the taps to the global market will kind of open up again for mm-hmm. us. Uh, but unfortunately, we're dealing with probably another, almost probably another year of, of challenges with inventory, just trying to get wine for people. And, you know, it's really hard to, to, to tell people you can't have more of that. Like we right. don't, <laughs> there's no more. Like right. it's such a strange thing to have. Like, um, it is across a, the board it for is champagne. a strange problem to have i mean i'm totally and completely with you i think it's the whole structure is very fascinating to me and how these things just fell away it's interesting yeah so i think you know that being said and seek out the producers you enjoy Mm -hmm. i really think you know 
those producers are making wine. They still are bringing wine to the country. Like we're, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we're, we're being good about you know, sticking with the folks that we, what we love mm-hmm. their wines. Um, but when you can't find them, you know, don't stop drinking wine or don't stop drinking sparkling <laughs> wine either. But wait, uh, let me ask you a question as we begin to wrap up. Yeah. So how do you recommend, I think this is sure. a good way to sort of wrap this up. So how do you recommend to maybe somebody like me, like I'm, I, I know what I like. I, I wouldn't right. consider myself an educated, I would consider myself an educated wine consumer, right. but like, I didn't know about this particular grower uh-huh. champagne. So where would you pinpoint somebody like me or people who are interested in dipping their toes in yeah. to broadening their wine drinking horizons to learn about Gaston right. and other places <clears throat> like yeah. that so that it's in our brains when we go to a wine store, or we go to a restaurant and we look at the wine list and we're like, oh, I know this. Right. So how, where do you suggest people go to educate themselves? I think, and I... I I've always thought that the best place to educate yourself is are the shops and restaurants you most are you're most comfortable as a guest. Mm-hmm. Like if, you know, if going to see Bill at tail up is like a comfortable place for you and you like the way Bill talks about wine, mm-hmm. say, these are the things I like. Bill will tell you off of his list and what at the corner store right. that you should probably buy, which is so fun. Like, I would seek out and take advantage of the professionals that you know mm-hmm. and that you enjoy how they talk about wine and how they share wine. Um, and I think kind of at a, you know, at a more logistical level, you can, you can buy champagne anywhere in DC now, like mm-hmm. after COVID you can buy, you know, thankfully the restaurants are able to sell yeah. and things like that. So, you know, Go see Elliot Aparo, and who knows more about champagne than almost anyone I know. Yeah, she's really and, so. That was Ellie at Aparo, which is in Georgetown, mm-hmm. Upper Georgetown. Yeah, and uh, it's a darling little. It is uh, and, champagne bar. You know, you would think of it as a champagne bar, but oh, they you know, have a great she menu. Can, yeah, and they've got great food, but she can also just talk to you about champagne and tell you right. what you think. You know, hey, I usually drink, you know, Veuve Clicquot. Take any major, major producer, and she'll say, well, you know, if you like that, you might like these yes. other folks. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think those like building that. And then the other little kind of trick within the trade that you may play with every once in a while is turn the bottles over, find importers that you trust, like find, find suppliers and importers that, you know, almost every time I turn over the bottle that I've enjoyed and I see quote the Skernick name or something right. like that in this case, like our champagnes, I, in my opinion, are all really fantastic producers with really cool family stories. And so I feel, you know, if you turn over the bottle, you see Skarnik's name on there, you can feel pretty good that you're getting a really great bottle. Stylistically, that's when you need a little more guidance, maybe. And, you, sure. and again, that's when you want to lean on your local shop I think people. You bring and about a great point. Knowing the importers is it's a piece. Yeah, it's a worth, it is worth a piece. Working. I think yeah. I don't think a lot of people think that way. Yeah, but. Uh, for the more educated consumer, yeah. it probably makes sense. It does. And I think it's really, it, it's very helpful. I think it's one more piece and you'll see that like once you start doing it, you'll, you'll find yourself doing it more often mm-hmm. and it, you'll start to see trends in your, in your buying and your drinking, which I think is kind of cool. That is uh, cool. Yeah. All right. We could go down like 16 other rabbit holes, them, but it's yes. only an hour show. <laughs> so, um, Tell everybody, please, where they can find you. I don't know if you're online or if you're on Instagram, where we can find more about Skernick. Give sure. us the 411. Uh, I am an, I'm terrible at social media, personally. Because it's annoying. But go ahead. 
But uh, Skernik does have a pretty fantastic uh, media presence. So mm-hmm. Skernik Wines, uh, is, we have Facebook, there's Instagram, there's Twitter, all the all the standard S-A-U-R-N-I-K. fare. S-A-U-R-N-I-K, Skernik. Mm-hmm. Okay, Skernik, Skernik Wines. wines. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that's, uh, again, at all the all the major socials have, uh, mm-hmm. we've got presence on all of them. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the best way to find us and me. You can, you know. Probably find me at your corner bar sitting somewhere <laughs> having a bottle of wine. Well, Matt, it is a total treat to see you again. And Absolutely. And you. Yes. Thank you so much for today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm just going to wrap up the show if you'll hold on for one sec. So um, I want to thank you all for joining me back on Industry Night. Sorry you can't dig into this delicious wine that we're drinking here. Um, and it's always so good to catch up with old friends and really talk about sort of the industry and the business. Now, everything you heard here today can be found on the list or you want it.com. Uh, you know, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, any, any social media platform, um, at NYCCI, N-E-L-L-I-S. Um, of course you want to listen to Foodie and the Beast every Sunday at 11 a.m. on 1500 a.m. And you can subscribe to everything. Go to YouTube, Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Please subscribe. And you know, same thing with all the podcast platforms. I'd love for you to like it. I'd love for you to subscribe. And let's get some comments going. Start asking some questions because I can definitely get you answers. Let's start engaging a little bit more. And I promise to be a little more active on my social, even though it it really brings me down. Um, And lastly, I want to thank you all for joining us. And as I tell you on every show, and as you heard here today, um, supply issues are still happening. And there are major staff shortages, not just locally, but nationally. And it's not just in restaurants, it's in all businesses. So take your kindness, Bill, please just remember, nobody wants to argue, nobody wants to fight. If you do go to the bathroom and argue in the mirror, just like be kind out there. Thanks again for joining me. Get some great grower champagne and have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.